Hi, I'm Meredith. I'm Kristen. We'd like to welcome you to the writer's story. And it is July. We're just barely, uh, we're, we're just holding on to July right now. And it's been so hot and rainy. Yeah, the combination. Boy, talk about uh, muggy. <laughs> yeah, humidity. <laughs> the humidity is 200%. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, Yes. Um, but we've been, so we've been driven to our um, hammocks, to our easy chairs, <laughs> to the desk. Forced um, to just take it easy, I think. You know, summer yeah. just sort of reminds you that you probably need to relax a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been doing all sorts of different kinds of reading, which is fun. Um, and some just what I think of as light summer reading. And um, a little bit of, actually more than a little bit, some intensive songwriting with a singer-songwriter friend of mine, um, which is really fun. And it's it's such a different kind of writing. Oh, my gosh. It's um, kind of going from, I don't know what to what, working on a novel and then working on Uh, lyrics for a mm. a two-and-a-half-minute song. (laughs) I I would say that songwriting and poetry seem to be very closely aligned i think so yeah i i think i think it's great i think it's great to exercise a different writing muscle i kind of think of that uh, i think of journaling as kind of a different writing muscle it's not quite the same it's more of just expressiveness or whatever comes into your head and then i think of poetry as so much about the word selection Something that maybe you feel like you can't spend as much time on when you're faced with 80,000 words. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're looking at 200, you know, making making them all matter or less, you know? Yeah, yes. It, uh, I think, does have a lot of similarities with poetry. And there's also with songwriting, something that I need to just remind myself is the power of repetition, repeating words or having a word, you know, last for a while. Uh, That is recognizing the melodic and um, the beats of a song, the rhythm of a song. And and also, I I guess it's sort of the thing, like I was never a, a rhyming poet but I, I think that there's something about rhyming and songs which some, somehow satisfies some sort of, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, so, something in us where we really respond to that. It feels right. It feels like yeah. that's the right word yeah. because it rhymes. Yeah, I love, I love the, the rhyming aspect of it. Maybe a little too much. So <laughs> I think sometimes... One of the things I love about some songs is how they'll have a rhyme that's just a tiny bit off. So it's not like time and mine or something like that, but is whether it's um, the the rhyming element is internal to a word or the word carries into a longer phrase. I always think that might be a rhyming word with another line which you'd sort of, in your ear, expect to be the final sound of a line. But I love when they sort of wrap in idea with a couple more words that it's, and brings it's, the listener somewhere else. And it's also interesting. I mean, we were at a concert the other day, and someone was talking about how 
you can get um, people with fairly advanced dementia to still sing and remember lyrics to songs. And, wow. and, and I think that that's very true that I think that's part that's in some part of your mind and it's very satisfying. And so you can remember it because it does as part of the rhyming of it too, you know, where you're, you're going right. to end up yeah. and stuff. I don't know. It'd be very interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting, but it is true. They use um, a lot of singing and singing old songs for, for folks. Um, and yeah. They, and they do remember the word. They may not remember, you know, the names of the, the names of their loved ones, but they remember, um, you know, can't buy me love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, priorities, priorities. <laughs> it's just embedded. <laughs> it's embedded. I used to always laugh. Like I, I felt like, um, there were, there were lots of, there was lots of music from, you know, my middle school years or whatever that I didn't even actually like. But I'll be at something, and, and I actually know all the words. It really gets into your head. That's what pop music is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like you're like, song. gosh, I didn't even like this song. But yeah, I know every word, every word of it. But I can't, get, can't let it go. I can't let it go. It's yeah, occupying valuable real that. estate in my head. Right. The pairing of melody and lyrics is magic, I think. And add, you know, beat and rhythm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's Good. a really powerful, powerfully moving, potentially, yeah. combination. It's humbling for me to write, though, because I have these ideas that I think are so profound. And then I try to execute it in a song, and it's just so cheesy or cliched. You know, it's like, ah, I can't get off of the downbeat. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I have so much respect. For songwriters who compose a song that's like really simple, simple songs are really hard. I think. Yeah, I bet. Where there aren't that many words, maybe, but yeah. it just um, you know moves you or stays with you or speaks you know to you. Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah, it's a different kind of exercise, and it's been fun to do with uh, well with a musician. It's really fun. Devin Sproul has been. Um, partner to me in this and that's just been such a privilege because she's an amazing uh, musician professional singer songwriter so Fun. it's a privilege to be able to work with her yeah also, <laughs> yeah I had um I had big goals for July and I did do I did do a lot I feel like I'm making a lot of great progress in my book but I am not close to my finishing this draft and I I need to spend some time in August continuing before I send it out to beta readers. And um, so I'm a little disappointed, but, you know, it's sort of, it's a, it's a challenge. And uh, too much family stuff going on, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I know you're juggling a lot, but you, boy, you have a wonderful work ethic. And, um, and I know... I've read your writing and I have every confidence this will come together for you. Do you feel like you have a sense of kind of what you are lacking or what you want to be? Um, um, yeah, I think, you know, right now <clears throat> I feel that I mostly have the scenes that I need in the correct order that I need them in, but I need to still smooth them out and take out inconsistencies and um, 
and make and make them sing a little more. So I think in some times they're very basic and sort of what's that scene doing there? What does it have to accomplish? You know what, you know, so I, I think those are the kinds of things and it takes time. Um, it just takes time to, to do that in revision. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. You revise one place and now suddenly you've got to go revise someplace else because you've changed yeah. something. <laughs> the dominoes start falling. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I do like to, to think about satisfying your reader. So if you, yeah. it's this whole thing of you, you have a, you know, a loaded gun in your first chapter, it's got to go off at some point. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then your reader's like, what was the point of that? Why'd you show me the loaded gun? So, um, so, so thinking about what I've already established and making sure there's payoffs and I'm not just leaving something hanging. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. How are you uh, with your book right now? Are you... You said you're well, se- you're setting aside, aside I, for a little break. Yeah, I got. Um, it sounds like very similar stages where I brought it to a point where I have, I think, the elements of the story that I want to include. I had hoped to have a really strong rough draft by the end of the first week of July, and I have a I have a first draft, but it's not a strong one. It feels very rough. But um, it felt like I could set it aside and give it some time to breathe, me to think a little more or not think about it and then return to it with a fresh perspective, I hope. Um, so that's my aim in the beginning of August, to, which is just a few days away to oh, get back. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. Well, that'll be exciting. Yeah. And we yeah. have a we have a guest today. Oh, a tremendous guest! I'm very excited for our conversation with Maya Smart. Um, I met Maya in Richmond. She is um, just a delightful woman who had been. She worked in a leadership uh, role with our the local James River Writers Association that puts on an annual conference. She just did a wonderful job with that. She is, of course, a writer and. Uh, I'm super excited. She has um, her debut book coming out uh, in moments. And it is a book about reading that is for um, folks raising readers. So the title of the book is Reading for Our Lives, A Literacy Action Plan from Birth to Six. So she's passionate, Maya's passionate about um making books widely available and of course uh folks developing the skills to to dive into those books especially for kids and so i think this is just an amazing project i've had the privilege of seeing her work on this for a time and and getting a little bit of a well we'll get a chance to talk with her about the process because um, wow, does it ever represent a lot of research, a lot of um, you know very uh, careful analysis of how to raise a reader. So it's I'm super excited, and she's just loads of fun. So it'll be fun to talk with her about it. All right, let's call her up. Sounds good. Hi, Maya. Hello. How are you? 
Good. I'm so excited to meet you. Kristen gave you a long and glowing introduction. We are so happy to have you here, Maya. And so excited about your new book. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, so we want to dive in and just talk about everything. We want to talk about the book, of course. We want to talk also and learn from you how you um, became, became a writer, how you started writing. I think like many people, I always thought I would be a writer starting when I was very young, when you're doing the assignments in elementary school and writing your poems and you have the phenomenal first grade teacher who binds your books and <laughs> things. And I was named after a writer, named after Maya Angelou. So, so it, was fade, it was meant to be. Yes, it was <laughs> destined, but I was not clear on exactly what I would be writing. <laughs> or how long it would take me to get something book length finished. So I started my writing career as a business journalist and did some also some education reporting, largely freelancer for a number of different publications, small and large. And this is my first book. Wow. Yay. Congratulations. Yay. And what again is the release date? August 2nd. Yay. So awesome. That is exciting. Well, I think sometimes it just takes that long to get a book out of you. I mean, I think, you know, writing a writing a book, we can say this as we in, in the midst of writing another book, writing a book is really hard and it takes a lot and you have to be really passionate about all the elements because you're going to spend so much time and you basically have to tell all your loved ones like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm writing my book, you know, so it has to be worth it. Absolutely. And this book is called Reading for Our Lives, A Literacy Action Plan from Birth to Six. And I got kind of interested in how reading develops when I had my daughter about 10 years ago. So I feel like the book project has grown up alongside her. And the the real hardcore writing, okay, this is a book, took place over the last couple of years. Awesome. So your own personal research project, also known exactly. as your child. <laughs> <laughs> I had kind of, as a person who loved books and reading, I wanted to pass that on to my daughter and then just got increasingly interested in the, the details of what that looks like. I always imagined it was just sort of reading picture books with her and that she would automatically fall in love with the stories, but also learn to read really well. And then over time, the reading news articles and talking to parents with older children, I learned that often it's it's not that easy, even when you do read to them religiously. So it was a fun, a fun passion project to kind of go down that rabbit hole and figure out how does reading develop and why do so many children struggle with it? Yeah. Oh and boy, I wish, I wish I'd had this book a long time ago because I have a son who is not a reader, but I certainly did read to him a lot and he read a lot. And then it's sort of like middle school, they get a phone and I don't think he ever picked up another book on, you know, without an assignment <laughs> ever since that. And now he's off to college and I, hopefully he'll rediscover reading. <laughs> I don't know. You had a question. Well, Maya, you did so much research for this book. I remember um, learning some about that research along the way. You mentioned, you know, just meeting folks, talking with others about how they raised children to be readers and learning maybe it was a little more than the um the picture book 
page turning that you might have had in mind, but you also did, I mean, you did a deep dive in, in um, mastering resources around children's like learning development and so on and so forth. And um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also the way that you managed all that research. That was a job in and of itself. Um, yeah. Initially, I started with, I did reading just sort of news articles. And so a lot of the news that I was reading talked about disparities in reading achievement, but it didn't give a lot of detail about what caused the disparities. And when you're reading about kids who are labeled behind when they arrive in kindergarten, it just made me think, well, clearly there's something parents need to know prior to the start of school to help kids yeah. get off to a better start. So initially I looked at a lot of research related to reading instruction, but of course that's all focused on how reading instruction is done in classrooms with large groups of children who are, you know, kindergarten or older. So then I started backtracking and it's like, well, who's studying younger children and what do we know about how reading at home connects to reading success down the road? And then I went down another rabbit hole um, related to brain research and how connections are forged within the minds of infants. And so that led me into a bunch of research about language development. And I realized the connection between early language and literacy down the road. And there are all these cool things happening with babies that you can't imagine <laughs> that have a direct impact on how well they're reading in middle school, for example. Wow. So by the end of it, I have interviewed um, people who work in education, people who work in speech and language therapy, and people who are neuroscientists, and people in all these different fields to kind of patch together my own accessible version of how reading develops. There are many technical accounts, but I think what's special about my book is that I tried really hard to make it understandable for parents and also make it something that was practical. So after you read the book, you'll not only have a better understanding of sort of the theory and what research evidence suggests you might do to nurture stronger reading, but you'll have practical things you can do in everyday life when you're busy and tired with little children. <laughs> <laughs> that is a huge, that talk about a tall order. I mean, there are, you know, academic journals that you could write some of the information that you were learning for, you could have written, you know, in that style, but to make all of that research accessible, as you said, and available to people who are really busy and they they've got the little ones at home and they want to get them reading, and um, so to to bring all that research and package it in a way that people can digest and use and put put into action is um, an extraordinary achievement. Um, what were some of the things that you might have that surprised you along the way in learning? I think one thing that surprised me as someone coming from a, a journalism background and not someone who had gotten a PhD and worked in an academic setting prior to this was how, um, I don't know if the word is inconclusive or how um, preliminary a lot of research is. So uh -huh. when I first started, delving into academic journals, I thought, you know, this is the final word on this, that, or the other. And what I learned through reading more and more things is that it's just the body of knowledge that has so many contributors 
and people are testing other people's hypothesis and trying to replicate results. And there's all this um, building upon what other people are doing. And you can enter into this discussion at any point, depending on how you're searching and finding studies. <laughs> <laughs> and so you might read something and then, you know, six months later, discover that that theory has been debunked by this whole other body of research. So it's sort of like this very slow moving, um, but still moving. Yeah. <laughs> and that's in each different field. So there's like the psychologists are researching this and disagreeing with each other and coming to different conclusions. And people in education are thinking this and people in neuroscience are thinking this. And so it was, it was fun and challenging. It was very stimulating to try to figure out, well, what of this do most of the most knowledgeable people in the most well-respected journals, what do most of them think? is strong, yeah. strong enough evidence base that I should share it with parents. I wanted everything that was in there to have strong support for it. And so I have a ton of endnotes. I want people to dig into those if they're curious yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you know, agree or disagree, but at least have the information to know how I came to a certain recommendation. A lot of parenting books don't have any endnotes. Mm. You now cite statistics or things and you're like, where did they get that from? <laughs> they just yeah. found it. They found it under, <laughs> the stork brought it. I mean, is, is partially some of the issues that you, we really can't still, um, I don't ethically experiment on babies. So I couldn't say like, I'm going to take your child and then I'm going to take Kristen's child and take my child. And now I'm not going to speak to my child. And then I'm not going to read to Kristen's child. And then we're going to give everything to your child. Like we can't do that ethically. <laughs> right. So <laughs> what is our, our controlled experiment is sort of understood thinking like, Oh, I, I'm guessing this kid wasn't read to. I'm guessing, I mean, you know, we have to take sort of, I don't know, to take people's word for it or we're we trying to. The research has certainly in certain areas, there are still a vast amount of um, things that we don't know, answers we don't have. <laughs> so the things that are like still wildly contested, I didn't include in the book, but there have been some really cool developments in specific areas. And one was a thing called the Lena Foundation they created a little device, um, they call it a talk pedometer. Mm -hmm. And it's a little device that they put in babies, little vests and a little pocket in their, <laughs> in the front of their shirts. And it measures their language environment. So mm -hmm. it's counting the words that adults are speaking to them and it's counting the words they're speaking back or before their verbal, when they're pre-verbal, it counts, you know, coos or babbles or all these sorts of things. And so there's a lot, there are thousands and thousands of infants and toddlers who've worn these vests and had their language environments analyzed. So they're not analyzing for the content of the speech, but the, the quantity of the words, but also the quantity of back and forth exchanges between the babies and the adults in their environment. And there are some really powerful conclusions that um, and powerful studies that have been done by a number of researchers using that particular technology. So that was an example of one thing that I think is so cool. Yeah, that is. So what are like with the youngest, what is the, the youngest age that you think a child could have a book in its world? I think that books should be in kids' worlds from day one because we don't know exactly, you know, the day that it'll flip over to them paying attention to it. So mm -hmm. I have one chapter in the book where I'm talking about what um, reading or what nurturing literacy might look like at each age and stage. And there definitely are those stages where the child is chewing on the book or just mm -hmm. like batting at the book and <laughs> <laughs> it around. 
but as it's important for parents to understand all the things that they can teach with and without a book, but you're teaching vocabulary when you're reading a book, all of the words that they'll one day recognize when they see them in print are words for the most part that they've heard someone speak to them and understand yeah. in text. So parents can teach vocabulary, parents can teach letter names, shapes and sounds, parents can teach just conventions about how print works. As adults who read all day, all the time, we forget that little ones have to learn that the text in English anyway, goes from left to right or from top to bottom on the page or they have to learn the difference between a letter and a number. So I try to just get to the very basic basics and remind us that even if we aren't teachers, even if we aren't don't think of ourselves as educators, we definitely know more <laughs> than the babies and toddlers and preschoolers in our lives. And we can we can teach more than we might otherwise if we hadn't learned about these things. That, so yeah. uh, that so reminds me of a story. Um, and I don't know if I, I went to my mother just told me later, but my brother really struggled to read. It wasn't really an easy thing for him. But um, he was maybe like four and someone was at the house, like a, a friend. And he said, Oh, I'll read this book to you. And he got a book down and he proceeded to tell her the entire story of the book. And he had it memorized. And my mother said, he's not, he's not really reading. I mean, this was someone who actually taught literacy and she, what she said was so interesting. And she said, but he is showing all the marks of someone who is going to become literate because he knows that books have a story and he knows how you hold it and he knows you turn the page. Just like you're saying that you're reading from left to right. There's all these things that he's preparing for. And then when he's ready, obviously he's going to get those final skills. But I just thought that was so fascinating because, you know, I was kind of like, oh, he's just pretending that he knows the story. But he had my mother read, or all of us probably read this, you know, I don't know what it even was, Richard Scarry or something. So many times he had it memorized. <laughs> so another point, just repetition is so powerful. And so sometimes parents are concerned, like, we just see, they just only want to hear this one story or they just want to read this one book. But in many cases, they are are memorizing that there comes a, a day when they can attend to the print and mm -hmm. starting to connect that word or concept to what's in print. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a miracle. And it sort of makes sense when you lay it out like that. I've never really thought about it before in that way that like you could memorize, they might be memorizing it, really memorizing it based on what they're oral, what they're hearing. But then, then one day, they can start to see how the shapes of the words match the sounds maybe so, uh, that's fascinating so what is the what's the um wisdom on running your finger along the words as you read them in a book should you do that or should you not do that i think it's a, a great thing to do because for particularly young kids they don't always know that you're reading the words they may think that you're reading the pictures. Ah. <laughs> and so just like something as simple as um, just tracing under word, like brings their attention in line with yours and like kind of tells them where to focus. There are so many kids that love story time, but they're not paying any attention to the page. They're running around and playing, which is fine. It's just, and every time you're reading a story, it doesn't have to be a lesson. <laughs> a yeah. lesson. Um, but I do talk about, parents even just pointing out letters in isolation. So absolutely drag your finger along text in the book, 
but if you see a letter maybe at a logo or on a cereal box but just saying you know this is the letter a a says ah like a is made with three lines two long lines one goes down like this and like this and just connect and over time they recognize that all of those 26 letters are made of lines dots and curves that are oriented different ways like b and d do look very similar (laughs) it takes some time to notice that the line is on the left and one and on the right and there are just so many probably a million little details that go into reading that we forget that each and every one of them has to be learned yeah yeah i mean they don't all have to be taught like there are some things some kids will just pick up yeah um i like that i I think that it's interesting so you're sort of dividing it into different things i mean i think one of the big important stories to teach kids is that reading is really interesting and it's a way to get access to great stories and so you know I I just think that that's sort of like to me that's the first step really is you're you're telling them I get this thing from the shelf and now I'm telling you this exciting story I'm telling you something that's fun I'm telling you we get to snuggle together and all that kind of stuff and then from there building on you could also do this (laughs) without me here if you you know when you learn to read and so I think that I think it's really interesting because keeping to me um I just feel like kids in their language are so much more advanced than when they actually can read oh absolutely and so they're able to absorb stories and um you know chapter books or whatever when they're still maybe reading more the you know the basic reader books and so giving them a little bit of each so they keep pushing their vocabulary, but then they're learning those fundamentals. So it's really interesting. And that's me as not a scientist, but just a parent. <laughs> and I think it's also, I'd like to remind parents to read nonfiction also and just sort of everyday life things, labels, oh, yeah. signs in your neighborhood, all the things. Because stories are one thing and they're beautiful and they're important. I think that's where most parents think initially, but there's so much just practical meaning embedded in in letters and words in our everyday environment. And then I also like to remind parents that we kind of don't know what exactly will be required of our young readers in the future. But (laughs) even as an adult in the last 20 years, the reading that I do is so much more technical. (laughs) Even, you know, your ballot when we're all voting and the way some of the legislation is worded and um contracts like my mortgage for example <laughs> like oh yeah there's just i feel like are you agreeing more- on an app to let them you know have to, you know can you figure <laughs> out what they're telling you <laughs> like what have i just consented to in this app <laughs> and then so all these things i just think it's interesting and even jobs the kind of vocabulary that will be needed for the jobs that they'll be doing with artificial intelligence and machine learning, all the, you know, whatever the future holds. So I think it's interesting, this idea that these very simple little things, if we learn to do, learn to teach them and emphasize them before they even get to school, that something about that foundation will support whatever else they need to learn later in life. I've I've several times taught adult literacy and, um, and the story of how someone did not become a reader is also really fascinating. You know, I think that that journey that someone was on where they got derailed at a moment, I imagine that would also give a lot of information. I mean, I had one student and he was from Jamaica and going to school cost money. 
and his family didn't have any money. And, um, and, and access and, to books, yeah. right? And so I seeing mean, him navigate the world was fascinating. I think he, he did construction work, um, but he would take ta taxis everywhere. Because if you take a taxi, you can get in and you can say, I want to go to the library and they'll take you there. Whereas you if you go and take the subway, you have to read to find out when you're supposed to get off and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was very expensive to not be able to read. You know, mm -hmm. that was one of the things that really struck me how expensive it was for him. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of kids who probably had some issues reading or they moved a lot and they were pulled out at critical times of a classroom. And then they just sailed through school and nobody ever, <laughs> like they just, people just pushed them along. Um, but then the, what then you you're just- schools is that a lot of, um, the older you get in school, when you get to middle school, for example, and certainly high school, there are fewer people in the building with the seal set to teach you, even in the higher elementary wow. grades. So I met with a literacy specialist at a high school near where I live. And I was shocked because I thought since her title was literacy specialist that she would be tutoring, like she would be the most skilled of the most skilled um, reading instructors, helping kids who had failed to learn third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, you know, they're about to be out of school <laughs> and out in the real world and need to be able to read things. So that's what I was imagining her job would be, but it wasn't. Her job was to make subject matter content accessible to students. Mm. So if they were in a science class, how do you teach that science class to someone that can't read the textbook? Is it, oh my goodness. Is it a simpler version of the book? And so there are a number of specialists in different subject areas. And you can understand from the way that schools are measuring their success, um, you know, making accommodations for students to learn, learn the content. And I, it just blew my mind because I'm like, the content for that student still is reading. So yes, do all those other things and have someone to sit one-on-one -on -one and tutor them. Yeah, so. wow, that's really sobering. Oh. Yeah, I, it, it, it is. It, there's a there's quite a high percentage of the population. I'm not sure if it goes down or what. That uh, who cannot who cannot read. I think there's also the um, misconception that oh well, don't doesn't everybody eventually learn? Mm -hmm. But like to my point earlier, there are different levels, and yeah. there are people who can read. Maybe they can read a menu. Maybe they can read a bus schedule. But it's hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exhausting. Really it's exhausting. And so they're not going to read, like you're talking about. The contract that someone has them sign to lend the money so they don't understand that the interest rate goes up, you know, by that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's just, it's, 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 it's a lot of people trying to take advantage of you. And if you don't, if you can't read, yeah, it's really hard. So Maya, you organized the book by um, learning kind of stages or stages of reading development. Is that right? Um, initially, the first couple of chapters are, I try to give parents big picture and understanding of the kinds of things that I felt really confident that most parents could teach. <laughs> and then I have one chapter that talks about different ways that you can have a long-term impact on your child's literacy trajectory. So that chapter, it talks about reading with them, which is super important. It talks about how to talk with them. Also, again, to forge those brain connections and brain structure that will support later reading. It talks about how to be an advocate for them, how to 
almost network within your community so that you can have other people who are supporting their journey as a reader, whether it's librarian or pediatrician or, so some of the early chapters are kind of big picture, your parent, you can do it. <laughs> There's a different way to think about it. It's not just reading the yeah. next story, even though that's critical, but sort of tapping into your parent power. And then the second chapter actually goes stage by age and stage so that parents can see the unfolding of reading over time. And so that's the chapter that says, you know, book behavior at this age might just be chewing the book and <laughs> or get across the room. You know, at this point, they may be able to actually look at the page and distinguish between some of the objects on it. Like at this point, you know, now that they're three, you start talking about letters. They can recognize letters. You can talk about the shapes and the curves and all that. So it, and then after that, to your point, I focus on different skills and it's not a curriculum. It's not a workbook. So mm -hmm. there are these big picture areas. I want parents to feel confident teaching. So you can absolutely teach vocabulary just by labeling and pointing things in your environment, pointing out things in your environment or in a book. You can absolutely help your child recognize the sounds within words by singing nursery rhymes or playing word games or doing different things. And well, I, you know, and it, it's so, I think it's so important because more and more school has become um, very advanced as soon as you start. It used to be kindergarten. We were just like, oh, you know, just play together or whatever. But because of all the standards that they've instituted, they've just sort of counted back from that and said, okay, well, if by third grade we want them to be doing this, this, and this, that means they have to be reading in first grade, whether or not they're ready to be reading. And so I think there's sort of a, an issue where a lot of kids end up sort of behind because they are entering like their, maybe their parents did. <laughs> like now it's yes. time to go to school and they don't read yet. And, um, and I think that's true with a lot of boys, especially a lot of, I think boys have a tendency to maybe lag on the reading. Maybe that's just because people haven't encouraged them to do so, or they're running around or who knows, or their, their brains are different. But I think it's really interesting <laughs> that kids, that boys and girls often will read it differently. Well, I guess I see a lot of girls are more verbal too. Have you seen that in your research, Maya? I didn't come across a lot of um, research comparing boys and girls in that way. The interesting research about language, there were some pretty sizable differences between um, first and second born children, like later born children oh. kind of were talked to less and they had fewer back and forth exchanges, but it might just be there's more, there's more people to be conversing with so they didn't get much of a conversation. But lots of interesting um, ways things are sliced and diced. But one thing I definitely saw was that what would have been considered first grade when I was in elementary school in the 80s is now kindergarten. Like it's like a, the standard really is a year beyond. Yeah. What wow. And then if you think about that in times like COVID, when mm -hmm. school was disrupted so much and there are kids having kindergarten through a laptop, <laughs> and oh. then the first thing about school or, or any of it, and it's just wild. I think there are so many reasons for people to pay more attention to how we seed reading before school because 
school has changed. <laughs> Expectations are higher <laughs> when you start there. But for some reason, I don't get the sense. There has been in recent years, a lot of attention paid to ways that reading curriculum could be improved in schools. So I hope that now that reading curriculum seems to be trending in the right direction, that people will look kind of upstream to the things that even go into a child being able to take advantage of classroom instruction when they get there. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think the thing too is a lot of the stuff that they um, use, the early reader stuff that they use in schools is often incredibly boring for kids. And, um, and, I, and I think it's just really wonderful. I mean, when you have writers that will write books for kids that they actually are excited, you know, you know, to read. And, and that's, I think that's super challenging. And then it's also challenging to get, um, uh, you know, schools to actually carry those books. <laughs> um, There's never been more great children's literature than there is now, because we have all the, the classics that are wonderful, plus all the new stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I was, yeah, I was yeah. so excited um, when Kwame Alexander came to the book festival here in Charlottesville, and I could, you know, buy his new book, and I think it was like the crossover or something, and say, thank you for writing a book that a 10-year-old boy really wanted to read. And it was poetry, yeah. you know? And it was like, my mother bought the book for him, for this first book for him, and my son just like, Told, you know, loved it, and he loved basketball and all this stuff. It's really, it was really fun. It's fun to have them have those light up moments where they find a writer that they really like, and he would always collect then, you know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, all of them, you know. <laughs> have to get the new yeah. one. <laughs> I think about how many, how many writers are women. And back to your question, Meredith, about you know the gendered aspect of this, if there is one. Um, and the interest that kids have in some stories and not in others. And maybe you know, what it, some of the stories that really appeal to boys, um, not to lump all boys into one category and all girls into another. I mean, I loved some party well, boys stuff when I was a little There girl, are more but... male main characters, I believe. I haven't done all that research, but I think... I think being able to see someone that looks like you on the page is yeah. hugely important to not just be, um, you know, to just not feel like it's all white boys, um, you know, because we have such a diverse world and, you know, and we have boys and girls and now we have kids that are transgender. Like, how can we can we have other stories so that that we also will learn about those folks? I mean. We don't have to have everything be a badger or a, you know, a cat or a horse be the main character. Can we have also different kids yeah. that look differently and having different experiences and everything like that? Um, I mean, I think that's that's super. I just think it it opens kids up to the possibility that there's different points of view and there's, you know, different people in the world. Well, as writers, we love readers, right? And so <laughs> more the merrier. I just am um, so impressed with your work, Maya, and excited for how this book will um, impact hopefully millions of people. I mean, this is really important work you've done, and what a tremendous resource for parents, for grandparents, for aunts, uncles, cousins, all the people who might have little ones in their worlds um i love that you mentioned all that 
that wide community of people who support reading. Grandparents are huge. I have a website, mysmart.com, and I publish book roundups and literacy activities and different things. But anytime I do a survey to try to figure out who's reading the newsletter and yeah. from it, the most detailed survey responses are always from grandmas. Oh, I love it. <laughs> always include, you know, when I remember when I was growing up and I read this book and that book and all these wonderful experiences and I really want that for my grandkids and so it's always a great reminder to me that just it's a it's a group raising a reader is a group project oh yeah oh yeah Yeah. and there's so much joy in it and I love I mean the way that you write communicate Maya delivers on that so um I think yeah for folks to read this book I know it will be a real treat there's just, I mean, there's so much delight in reading, right? We get to experience all these and different share the books. I mean, reading. don't you get all excited when someone has a baby and you decide you're going to give them books? Yeah. And then you go and you pick them out. And then I just have to like be like, okay, you can just get three books because you've already got this. <laughs> and you have to pick it out and you'll be like, oh, which ones would I get? You know, it's so hard to decide. <laughs> yeah. I have the hardest time. I have the hardest time. Because you want to get them all. <laughs> <laughs> There's so, there so many good ones. There's yeah. so many wonderful ones. And I feel like you're... Um, this book is, you know, has the potential to be, you know, another, you know, whatever you put it next to your Dr. Spock, you know, it's this next stage. You've got to, you know, launching your kids and, and having them do really well. And, and I think reading well and being a lifetime reader sets you up for a lot of success yeah. in your life. You know, the, I think the doors all open for you and so that you can think about doing whatever you like as someone who can read. And, and I think re- come from reading comes writing, which is also super, super, super important. Super, super important. Yeah. And I talk about, speaking of writing, I end each chapter with journal prompts because mm-hmm. I want to encourage parents to get in the habit of reflecting on this journey to raise a reader. And also, so when you have intuitions that your child might be having some challenges or something going on, you have that record that you can then, you know, share some notes with the pediatrician and say, I haven't observed this, what's going on, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, what a great idea. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and it was great to meet you, and we just are, I'm sure we're going to hear great things about your book launch, and, um, you know. Reading for our lives. Reading for our lives. It was just so wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it was so great to chat with Maya. So exciting to hear about this book. I know. I just think it's it's a, it's another, um, it's a whole new thing. I mean, I think that it is a resource that we've desperately needed but didn't know we needed until now it's here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it just fills a gap that um, we have in our, yeah. in our culture for how to help kids get launched as readers. Well, and empowering, I think empowering parents to sort of say, you can affect, you can have an effect on this. You don't have to just wait for school and then just give up if, if school doesn't work either. Like here's some, here's some great tools to use. Here's some great knowledge to know, you know, this is what you need to know. And And you don't have to be an expert yourself as the adult in this Right. You don't have to be a teacher. You can, um, you know, just care 
and and be willing to take some time so such yeah. a such a great yeah. thank you for introducing uh her to us and um well, and I know I just have a feeling we're just gonna hear great things about this. Um because yeah, so. you're right. Yeah. You're right. There is a real need for it. So Well, it's been great talking with you, Meredith, as always. As always. And uh we shall see uh see you next month and um and good luck with all with your draft. Um, thank you. I Same hope we you. both return to the page renewed and refreshed and ready to re- ready to write again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Till then. All bye. Right. Take care. Bye.